Hear now the word of God. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have this very brief encounter with this man, Simeon, who we know so little about. And yet the things we do know, Father, are so profound, and we do pray that as we examine this encounter that he has with Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, that we would be able, Father, to extract from that that which you'd have us know. So we do pray, Father, that you would inform us of things about yourself and help us, Father, to also understand through these words your call in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we have the final poem, song. What am I? What are my ties? All right, we good? Right. There's a canticle, prayer, whatever you want to call it. A lot of people argue about what this is, this little prayer of, of Simeon. But it's the last one in this section surrounding the births of, of John the Baptist and the birth of, of Jesus. It's given by this guy, Simeon, who I mentioned in the prayer. We don't know a whole lot about, but we do know this. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and he was given this promise that he would not see Death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. This very unique promise that was given to him at the changing of the ages. That God had promised him, in a, I guess in a way, that you're going to see B.C. become A.D. And this idea that, you know, I can depart in peace, we discussed last time, wasn't some morbid desire that Simeon had to die. The excitement that he had, the, the peace that he had, was that he would see the beginning of God keeping his promise in Christ. He would begin to see the, this great commission. He would see the Lord vindicate his own name. To see God work in this manner provided Simeon with a, with a depth of satisfaction that he could now die in peace. We talked a little bit about that last week. Like, what would have to happen in order for you to go, I'm ready to go, I can die in peace. Not only is he, as we read in Isaiah 57, taken away from the calamity of this world, and I hope that's not you, you know, going, look at it, I just want to get out of here, just beam me up, Scotty, whatever. you know, all this rapture stuff, you know, it's a mess. Just, I hope that is not your disposition. I don't want people on my team as a coach, who just want the game to end. Right? You want, you want fighters. You want people who are going, hey, 
I'm ready to do what it takes to win this game. You know, and I, I, mean, I might obsess with sports analogies, but Paul uses them, right? Boxing and running a race, and so be it. No, he could rejoice in knowing that the living waters would begin to trickle. As Ezekiel put it, right? It's trickling out of this fountain who is Christ, and eventually it will become an impassable deluge. It's, the flood is starting. This great redemption which Simeon saw when he lifted up the Savior in his arms is summed up in the simple words uttered by Simeon when he held the baby Jesus, he held the Savior of the world in his arms and said that he had seen God's salvation. Now, what we have this morning is the remainder of that prayer. He begins with, I've seen the Lord's salvation, and now he elaborates. And by the way, this is verse 31, just if you're checking your notes. Which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. Now I want to stop there for a second. Because being born and raised in a nation such as ours, we tend to live under the assumption that we have a perfect right to anything anyone else has a perfect right to. The all men are created equal clause in the Declaration of Independence has, and I think rightfully so, successfully injected that thinking into our corporate conscience. We tend to think that way. We don't tend to think uh, we have a somewhat classless society when it comes to that type of thinking, generally speaking. Now, since such thinking flows so easily through our bloodstreams, I think we fail to appreciate a verse like this, the face of all peoples. See, you see, stratifications have run through virtually all religious and political and economic systems throughout the course of history. We, we, we have no idea the powerful effect of these stratifications. And this is true even of the Christian faith. And I'm not talking about perversions of the Christian faith. Since the Christian faith was first proclaimed in Genesis 3 at the fall of man, we see even in the Christian faith this type of stratification. The administration of Christianity prior to the birth of Christ was almost uniquely Jewish or people who proselyted into Israel and not merely supervised, but participated in by healthy Jewish men. If you read the Old Testament, they were the guys running the show. For example, circumcision, which was a sign of inclusion in the covenant, for obvious reasons, was not given to women. Eunuchs were excluded from the assembly of the Lord. Think lepers, right? Lepers were unclean. You got all these groups of people who just can't be part of it. It goes on and on. So we get into the new covenant. And all of a sudden, what, we, what do we notice? 
What is, who does Jesus touch? He touches the leper. We get, into the new, we get into the New Covenant, the New Testament, and one of the most popular baptisms is a baptism of what? Of who? The Ethiopian eunuch. We get into the New Covenant, and all of a sudden we see Lydia baptized, a woman. We get into the New Covenant, and we see households baptized of Gentiles. All this, you know, we tend to look at these things as just random accounts, but no, if you read the Old Testament and then you come into the New Testament, you go, wow, these, this is shocking. And by the way, it was shocking to them, not shocking to us. But when Simeon mentions the faces of all people, that's what he's bringing to our attention, and he's not coming up with something new. A student of the Old Testament would have known this. They should have known it. What was the promise given to Abraham that in him who would be blessed? All the families of the earth, not just the Israelites. We read in Isaiah 52.10, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. You see, this phrase that Simeon uses here, before the faces of all people, means everybody. You know, it may not be all people without exception, but it certainly is all people without distinction. I recall, I wasn't raised in the church. I recall going into the church, well, when I was little, when I was like seven, I was... I was too young to feel uncomfortable. I just, but when I was 17 and I started going steadily, I remember feeling very uncomfortable in that environment. I felt very much like I didn't belong. I looked around and I saw everybody and they just seemed so together. I eventually got a job as a minister in that church and I realized they are not all together. But that's the feeling I got. I got this feeling that I I really don't belong. But let me tell you, the Christian faith is for all people at any station in life who by the grace of God are seeking Christ. Anybody who walks in this room. Now, at the time of Simeon, the truly faithful amounted to a small what Rome and many of the Israelites viewed as a a small sect of Judaism that would rapidly lose its momentum. Remember Gamaliel? Yeah, just let it go. They'll have their 15 minutes and that they'll be done. Yet, I would say they were significantly wrong. I think Simeon was very right when he said the faces of all people Because 2,000 years ago, the world encountered a magnificent interruption. God interrupted the direction of this world with the baby Jesus. It's the biggest interruption creation has ever known. The birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. I've, I've quoted this before, about what I'm about to quote, but I have to say, I enjoy it so much. I, you know me, I'm not one for 
poems and quotes, you know, and footprints in the sand and all that. I generally don't like those kinds of things. But I have to say, what I'm about to read, we'll have it on the screen, I just think it's marvelous. It's taken from a, um, a sermon that was given in 1926 from this guy, James Allen Francis. And then it, they took the sermon and then they extracted the poem from it. And I think in light of what Simeon said about, you know, the faces of all people, I think this poem coming from that sermon is appropriate. And it reads, talking of Jesus, the solitary life of Christ. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30, when public opinion turned against him. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited the big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves while dying as executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone. Of course, this was written a hundred years ago. And today, Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. You see, that solitary life now has not affected hundreds, has not affected thousands, has not affected millions, but now is into the billions. I think the last Pew poll was 2.2 billion people. So Simeon was right when he said the faces of all people. He continues, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So again, we see here the international nature of the gospel, right? The Gentiles. In the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we read in Matthew 4, 15 and 16, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness. That is not a place where the sun never came up. It's talking about moral theological, religious darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. He talks about the glory of the people Israel. The glory of the people Israel is that the Savior Christ would come through Israel. We read in Psalm 107, following what we had read earlier, some sat in darkness, verses 10 through 14, and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God. So we're told 
why they end up in that darkened estate. Because they rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. It feels sometimes, you know, and I read a passage like this, what it must have looked like when they so disregarded the word of God that they end up in this deplorable condition and God's going, you want to live in a world as if there is no God? I'll show you what that looks like. And here you have it. Now you are victims to the caprice of man. You know, the, the Babylonians, you want man to be in charge? They're in charge, and now you're the victims of them. And now you have the wisdom by the grace of God to call out. And you know what? When you call out, I'll deliver you. But obviously there's a lesson to be learned. I don't know about you, but I do feel sometimes that I live in a world barraged with nonsense. It can be frustrating to observe, as it were, the ethical, political, philosophical, cultural, and economic folly by which we're surrounded, and sometimes penetrating the church itself. It's not as if we're immune to the darkness of the culture making its way, creeping, as the Bible says, into the church. But here's what we need to understand. That these calculations of darkness are established by those who sit in darkness. John Calvin took comfort in the, in the recognition that the people who were his biggest detractors were, according to the scriptures, blind. You tend not to get mad at blind people when they knock over your furniture. And so that's the way he approached it. He's like, I'm not going to allow it to get frustrating because I recognize that they are walking in darkness. A revelation, to use the words in the text, is needed. An unveiling. A light needs to go on. So where is that light going to come from? Now that Jesus has ascended, how does this unveiling happen? I think it's summed up by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 14 through 16 talking to his followers, talking to you, talking to me. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. We, you and I have been given the responsibility you, I mean, I hope you realize that in this dark world that is so frustrating for so many of you, I know, that God has given you a flashlight and you need to put it on. You got to turn on the flashlight. If you're in a dark room with a flashlight, you need to put the flashlight on. Not to go too far, you know, but I feel like we have mag lights. We don't turn them on but we start hitting people on the head with them. <laughs> Better to turn it on. 
How does that happen? How, how do you turn that on? Well, according to the text, we turn it on by seeking to do well. We, we put it on by living a good life, what he calls good works. We should live a good life. By a good life, I'm talking about people who are honest and hardworking, trustworthy. I mean, all the things that the Bible says are genuinely good. And when people see that about you, then you, you don't glorify yourself, Jesus says, and you glorify your Father who's in heaven. That's the means by which this takes place now that Christ has ascended. But you know what? And here's where this whole story with Simeon and Mary and Joseph and Jesus takes a little bit of a turn. You got to live with the fact that not everybody likes a well-lit room. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Most of Israel, by the way, did not marvel at this time. Mary and Joseph, they marveled. What's wrong with us that we don't marvel? There's a member of our church who uh, we t- I talk to pretty you know, occasionally, and we both kind of wrestle with the idea that we get so excited when somebody makes a basket, scores a touchdown, we can barely, and I'm one of them, right? Uh, yeah, I don't really watch sports anymore. I feel like professional athletes have become prima donnas. But <laughs> aside from that, you know, you get excited, right? But we don't seem to do that in the same manner, in the same way, when it comes to the things of God. What's wrong with us that we don't marvel? Well, let me tell you this. When my kids are on the court or the field or the stage, you may want to avoid talking with me because I'm preoccupied. You know what I'm doing? I'm marveling. And it's not because they're so super talented, even though they are. No, I'm marveling because, because they're mine. I'm marveling because I, I love them. I marvel because I'm, I'm invested, right? I'm invested, you know, when they were little and they'd do a play. When they were on stage, it was like the best moment of the month. But the moment they walked off stage and only the other kids were on stage, it was painful. You know why we don't marvel? We don't marvel because our hands aren't in the mixture. We've not prayed. We've not shared. We've not served. We have barely obeyed. Yet somehow we think that such a tepid faith should somehow produce marveling. Don't expect to marvel if you don't think things are marvelous enough to gain your devotion. 
Mary had earlier pondered. Remember we talked about she pondered these things? Remember what that meant? Literally, it means she was throwing this all together. To use a cold theological term, she was systematizing it all. She's putting it all together in her mind. Simeon is now going to add something to that systematizing of events when he says, your child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. But that, all of a sudden you're like going, wait, what? We, it's, we've got this birth, we've got you know, the, the, uh, the, the customs of the baby and all this exciting event, and he's blessing them, saying good things about them. This is, you know, I've, I've seen God's salvation. I wonder maybe if seeing them marvel, he was almost kind of going, okay, and Emily, give you the bad news. Jesus, being the truth, will have the effect that truth has. You know what truth does? It, 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 by the very nature of the case, it divides. Truth is divisive. The very thing that truth does is it, it sets itself against falsehood. Now, the religious community, keeping in mind the context here, during the time of Christ, was not just a bit off. The, the religious community during the time of Christ didn't need just a little tweak in the steering wheel of their morality or of their religion. The religious community that Jesus was born into, Jesus told them, who their actual father was. You know who it was? Yeah. I mean, he's talking to priests. And he says, your father is the father of lies, the devil. You read John chapter 8. That didn't go well. I don't think they were terribly excited to hear that. They probably thought at the time that their God was just fine. You know, let me tell you something. You know, there's a very small amount of atheists in the world. I mean, I know that it's, it's kind of got legs, you know, with, you know, you know, Harris and Dawkins and Hitchens and these guys, you know. But they're really, when you get right down to it, mo most people are not atheists. Very small percent are atheists. Most people would define themselves as spiritual and as believing in a God. But the world loves an ambiguous God. They love a God that is just not very identifiable. The, the world loves a God like the golden calf. Right? So when the Israelites are in the wilderness and they get all the gold and they build the golden calf, you know, they weren't going, look, it, we're going to start following a false god. They weren't doing that. What they, were, what they were doing is they were saying, we want to follow the true God, but we want our version of the true God, which, by the way, became a false god. And J.I. Packer, I think, makes a really good point in knowing God. He goes, what they wanted was a, was a big, strong god, like a bull calf, who would do what they want him to do. They want a big, strong, powerful God who will do their bidding. 
What they didn't want was an identifiable God who calls us to do his bidding. This is the world that Jesus was born into. The true religion had descended to that which was devilish, satanic. And this is the world that we see ourselves surrounded by to this very day. Even the Christian religion descends to this cultural construction. I mean, I, when I look at the best-selling Christian books, when I listen to the biggest pastors of the biggest churches and their moral and theological opinions, it's not difficult to conclude that the scriptures are no longer the predominant guide. The idea of just kind of look, you know, look at, you know, here's what the Bible says. Let's go verse by verse and let's really extract from it what it really says, what it really means, what it tells us about God, what it tells us about our lives. That's playing second fiddle. The church is content to sit in a lukewarm jacuzzi. But when the true Christ, when the biblical Christ is introduced into the affairs of man. There's nothing tepid about it. He is either believed or he's denied. He is either going to be loved or he's going to be hated. Right? Didn't he say that? You can't serve two masters. You love one and what? You hate the other. Now, that the hatred might come off as something that doesn't look like hatred. It could just be like patronizing and condescending and there, there, you have your religion. Just enjoy it. Just don't bring it into my house, you know. Don't bring it into my world. Don't bring it into my politics and what have you. You just stay in your dark corner and do your little catechism. Peter wrote that Jesus will be either chosen and precious or a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Those are the two options. He will either be precious to you or he's getting in your way. And by the way, in presenting this widely varied response to Jesus, Peter completes that thought with these words, quote, as, he's talking about people who are, going to, who are going to stumble over Jesus, as they were destined to do. You wonder why he wrote that. I think that he's writing stuff like that so that his readers would know that all of this isn't catching God off guard. And it shouldn't catch you off guard. You need to know that difficulties, it's part of the plan. Resistance is part of the plan. Jesus was clear on this, that peace on earth would come at the expense of addressing a false peace on earth. At the time, it was probably Pax Romana, right? The Roman peace. The Roman, they had so dominated the world that nobody would fight them, so there was peace. Let me tell you, as somebody who's done marriage counseling for many years, the fact, that you're, the fact that you don't argue doesn't mean you have a healthy household. 
Sometimes I'd rather see an argument. I used to do this. I don't do it so much anymore when I'm doing premarital counseling. I would pick topics to force them into an argument. <laughs> so, you know, your teenage child comes home with a tattoo and a roach clip for the smoking of the marijuana. What do you do? No kid of mine, he's out. You're kicking our kid out? I mean, of course, they're not even married yet, right? But then now they're 16-year-old kid. Now they're in a fight. And I'm like, all right, let's see how you guys work this out. <laughs> you know why? Because stuff like that happens. The fact that you're not arguing doesn't mean everything is good. And the fact that there's peace doesn't mean there's real peace. And Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. In this respect, Jesus, like a sword, is the great divider. That's what swords do. They divide. Simeon here points out that the Lord would give them a sign. He uses that word sign. And in Matthew, and I don't have time to get into this, you know, Jesus in Matthew 16 says, you know, you should know, there's a sign here, and you guys can't, you can tell what season it is, but you, don't, you can't see the sign of that, that you're living in. You should have known by the signs of Christ himself. And it's many times given, but the obvious example is in Isaiah 7.14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. What's the sign? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. The, 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 the child is the sign. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. The eternal Son of God entered human history and would disrupt the religion of man. The temple. Think about this. Because what happened here was that it wasn't as if this was some pagan religion, the Pharisees. The true religion had descended into a false religion. And the temple, which they may very well have been able to see from where they were, right? They're in Jerusalem, so they might have been able to look at the temple. And the temple itself, which was the heart of the true religion, had so descended to an object of apostasy and idolatry that Jesus in the Olivet Discourse taught that it was going to be raised to ruins. Talk about getting in the way. The very temple was getting in the way. Why? Because the design of the temple was to teach them about Jesus, the true temple. And when Jesus came and they kept obsessing on the temple, God was like, okay, we need to get rid of it. We need to get rid of the temple. So you won't have any place to go. And you'll recognize where you need to go. How many of us have felt that, where we're like going, we have all our little places of refuge. I remember during COVID, the hardest thing for me was I couldn't go to the beach. Because, not to get into the wise decision of closing the beaches, but I know for, for me, for me, you know, when I'm having a rough day, I'll tell my wife, I'll be like, I'm going to go down and look at the water, and I, which I've done my whole life, and it's kind of perspective, you know, and it's, it hasn't changed my whole life. It's the same. 
When you look that way, it's the same. When you look this way, it's not. But, you know, it's just I can feel my neck loosen up and all this. But there was a period of time when God's going, look at it, you can't go to the beach. I'm taking that away from you. Sometimes he takes away our places of refuge in order for us to recognize that he needs to be our refuge. Churches, we're talking about, keep this in mind. We're talking about the true church, which was Israel, represented by the the temple, had descended into that which was dark and even satanic. But you know what the Apostle Paul says, and this is because this is not just a history lesson, it's a lesson for us. Because the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 says, what happened to them can happen to you if you follow their course of unbelief. And churches throughout the course of history have done that very thing. Where they've abandoned the word of God, they've abandoned the scriptures, they've abandoned the true Christ, and they are no longer churches at all, but synagogues of Satan. We, it's a fight. We need to contend. Talk about boxing, right? You need to contend for the faith. You need to fight for the faith. You don't cruise through this. In a similar manner that Peter warned his readers, as he just mentioned, that God has ordained in eternity past opposition. Right? He goes, there are stumbling, which God predestined. He destined it before time began. Simeon warns Mary of the difficulties ahead. Right? I mean, this is kind of a happy event. There's a baby. They're marveling. Verse 35, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. I don't know. Not something you really want to hear, right? Soul-piercing enterprise. So often... The Christian faith is presented as a philosophy, maybe you've heard it, to help you through life. Right? It's a philosophy to help you through your day. Jesus is the ultimate motivational speaker, and following him means things like thinking positively, being grateful, achieving our goals, forgetting our past. Tapping into energy, having high standards, being a visionary, having a dream. Now, I think most of what I just said, properly understood, those aren't necessarily bad things. Some of that stuff, we should. We should do. We should have. But here's the deal. As a pastor, I'm tempted to let those types of things take over. Because... I really do want you to have a good day. I want you to have a good week. I want you to have a good marriage. I want everybody here to be as happy as they could possibly be. But the heart of the Christian faith, above all these things, the true and eternal happiness, the true and eternal peace, is that Jesus was incarnated. He became flesh. Why? That he might die. A body was prepared for him that he might die for the sins of the world. 
And when that truth is presented, what it does is it blows away the fog of the lesser things. It, it blows all that fog out of the room. But here's something I've noticed. The fog doesn't always want to leave. The fog wants to stay. It does not want to acknowledge its own vaporous condition. We're offended by the proposition that we are, to quote James, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Jesus, just as the truth of his word was a two-edged sword. Interesting, when you read Hebrews 12, the pronouns change. You know, talking about the word of God, all of a sudden it's him. We think the word of God, we think the Bible, right? And then all of a sudden, the author of Hebrews switches it to a him because the truth of God's word is personified in Christ himself. And that word of God, we are told, similar to what Simeon just says, judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We read, you know, sophisticated people read the Bible and they want to judge it, right? Hire critics. And they're judging the Bible. You know what? The Bible judges you. You read it, it judges you. It, it reveals, they talk about the light. All of a sudden the light in the room goes on. The sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus, his truth, the sword coming out of his mouth would result in a spear going in his side. Talk about, talk about I, will, I will bruise your heel. You will bruise this heel, but I will crush your head. You have that spear in his side. But death itself is defeated on the cross of Christ. But what we have to understand here, what Simeon seemed to want to make sure Mary understood was it's a painful road. This idea of a kind of finding a, a Christianity that is just, you know, keep your spirits high and wishful thinking and do all, you know, it's the idea that you're not in for a rough ride, it doesn't seem to be the way that Jesus taught it, Right? We'll get into this later in Luke where people are like, yeah, I want to follow you. And he's like, really? Because I, I don't have a rock to lay my head on. You want to follow me? Well, then you can't go to your dad's funeral. You want to follow me? Sell everything you have. Like he, it's almost like he's dissuading people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it the cost of discipleship. Are you willing to pay the cost? Nobody begins to build something without calculating how much it costs. What Simeon, by the Spirit, thought Mary needed to know was how painful the future was going to be. That it would pierce her soul. I mean, she was. I mean, we tend to dehumanize these people. She was, after all, his mom. You know, and she probably wasn't that old. You know, I don't know, at the time of the crucifixion, maybe 50 when she looked at her son on a cross. We can't dehumanize that. 
But the point here is, it's good to know in advance that the road before you may have thorns and traps and robbers. Do you realize that? It always shocks me when somebody leaves the Christian faith because they went through a difficult period of time. I'm like, who ever told you that wasn't going to happen? Have you even begun to read the Bible? Read the Bible. Have you, have you read? Are you even aware of the fact that of the 12 apostles, you know, Judas gone, replaced by Matthias, 11 of them were put to death for their faith. What, what are you reading that makes you think that this journey is going to be easy? Sometimes I meet with couples who are in troubled marriages. Things are difficult. And every, one, every once in a while, I'll hear this line. I didn't sign up for this. I'm like, I don't, I, maybe I wasn't at your wedding. But I'm guessing some words like for better or for worse showed up. This is exactly what you signed up for. I mean, barring some exceptions, you know, desertion or adultery or something. The difficulty is exactly what you signed up for. Why do you think it's even in there? Why do you think those words are even there? Friends, doing the right thing, I'll just let me tell you right now, being a child of God, seeking to be faithful, can be a soul-piercing enterprise. It can hurt. You wonder, I have to wonder if Simeon wanted to somehow produce in Mary what God had produced in him. Was he aiding her to embrace a deep peace, even at the prospect of death? You know, this idea of die, he was going to die well, it seemed like. And he wanted to kind of impart that to her. Don't have unrealistic expectations about the road that God is going to put you on. In order for your son to be your savior, you're going to have to see him undergo that which is horrifying. Did he want her, even in the face of the pain that she would encounter, to have a comfort? Not that things would always go well according to her calculations. Not that things will always go well according to your calculations, but ultimately recognizing, deeply recognizing. We're talking about the Psalms, right? Where you're, you're sitting there in the desert. You're being chased. You, you realize that you're being chased because you did something wrong. It's not somebody else's fault. It's your fault. And you're just sitting on a rock, kind of going, God, doesn't seem like I can navigate this. I got no answer for this. I'm trying to see where it's all going to end up good in the end, but it seems to me, based upon that scorpion and that rattlesnake, that I'm about to die. Where is the peace? The peace is that your soul is in the hands of a God who is all good, all wise, and all powerful. You wonder if Simeon was trying to create in Mary by the Spirit of God that which Job said. 
Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would not be a capricious people, but that we would take great comfort in knowing that you, in fact, scrutinize our path, that before there was yet one, you've ordained every single day of our lives, and that even though we don't always know what the future holds, we know that you do. And we know that you hold us in your hands and that we are your children. And we do pray, Father, that even in our weakness and our lack of ability to navigate difficult waters, that there are no storms too difficult for you. In fact, you do create those storms that we might cling to you, and I do pray that would be true of every one of us, Father, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.